Uh, you, you don't have to say it out loud, but I want you to think about this with me for a moment. And that is, if you could wish for anything in the world, what would it be? If you could wish for anything in the world. The 2005 reality TV show, Three Wishes, asked that very question in small towns across America. In each heartwarming episode, the producers made wishes come true. They gave three people the one thing they wanted more than anything else in life. In fact, the television producers told the people, they said, look, money is no, is no object. It's not a factor. Wish whatever you want, which may explain why the show was canceled after only one season. <laughs> because, because making wishes at no expense can be very, very expensive. But again, let me ask you, you don't have to say it out loud, but if you could wish for anything in the world, what would it be? And I really, I want you to think beyond what TV producers could give you, Okay. Anything, what would it be? Maybe great wealth? A certain athletic ability? Maybe a certain body type? A larger home? Maybe the thing that's going through your mind right now as you're thinking, if I could have anything, what would it be? Is maybe something a little bit more reasonable and less extravagant? Maybe just a what you would really want is a stable job that could provide for you and your family. Or perhaps what you really want is a godly spouse or children of your own or children who walk with the Lord. If you could have anything in the world, what would it be? This question, it's an attractive thought, isn't it? this idea that there could be someone out there like that TV show that could give you whatever you want. We love this idea of a genie in a bottle, don't we? And, and why is that? Why do we love the idea that there could be someone out there, a TV producer or someone, who could grant and make happen the wishes and desires of our heart? Why do you think we like that idea so much? I think be wrong, but I think what makes that thought so attractive is it puts us in the driver's seat. And we're, we're the ones calling the shots. Because, I mean, do we not believe at the deepest core of our being that we know what's best for our lives? And if I could just get my wishes, my wants, my desires met, then all my concerns, all my burdens, all my anxieties, they would just go away. Then, then I could be truly happy and content, right? Deep down, we believe, I think at our core, that we know what is best for our lives. 
This morning, we return to our study of 2 Samuel. We're going to be looking at chapter 5, the first half of chapter 5 this morning. And in this chapter, which records Dave's, David's enthronement as king over all the tribes of Israel, in the first several verses of this chapter, we learn, Faith, please hear me, a really, really significant and profound truth. A profound truth that if we actually apply it and believe it and incorporate it into our lives, many, if not all, our fears and concerns would evaporate. In fact, do you, want, do you want peace in your life? Do you want greater joy? I know I do. Well, if so, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 5. That's page 257 in that paperback Bible in the seat in front of you. And as you're turning there, let me just give you the context. The opening four chapters of 2 Samuel, they record the story of David's journey to become enthroned as the king over all of Israel. And as we've seen, this journey isn't pretty, is it? No, David's ascension to be king over all of Israel is marked. These first four chapters are marked with discord and adversity. And over the last several weeks, we've learned some important truths concerning relational conflict, haven't we? The first one we learned, you'll recall, is this, and that is your relational conflict comes from your ruling desires. 2 Samuel chapters 2 through 3 brilliantly illustrate what James 4 verses 1 through 3 teach, and that is relational conflict doesn't come from outside of you, but inside of you, your ruling desires. Right? James says, Why are there, what is the source of quarrels in, among you? Is it not this? the passions that wage war within you. Conflict comes when you want something so badly, you're willing to sin to get it, and sin if you what? Don't. You can't get it. Relational conflict comes from your ruling desires. And this was on full display with Abner and Joab, was it not? Then what do we see the brothers of 2 Samuel 4 and the Amalekite in 2 Samuel 1 doing. Do you remember? The Amalekite at the beginning of 2 Samuel, he claimed that he killed who? But did he? The two brothers in 2 Samuel 4, they kill Saul's son. And both of these guys, the Amalekite and the two brothers, they go to David to present this news. And they killed such people, or claimed to, in order to gain a position in the kingdom. They were acting out of their own self-interest. And do you remember what David's response is to both the brothers and the Amalekite? D David, God's true anointed son, he's having none of it. And he orders that they all be what? Killed. And you'll recall David's response drove home this truth, and that is, Selfish ambition has no place in God's kingdom. Striving to be first, like a horse race. Jockeying to be first. 
has no place in God's kingdom. And we see this taught throughout the New Testament, especially James 3 and Philippians 2. Well, now in 2 Samuel 5, Saul's son Ishbosheth has been killed. He's been murdered. Abner died. The, the stage is now set for David to be king of all the tribes of Israel. So follow along with me in your copy of, your, of God's word as I read 2 Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. We read this. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. Finally, <laughs> the long, long wait is over. David is now finally enthroned and installed as king over not just Judah, but all the tribes of Israel. And what a waiting game it has been, right? Now notice, being the helpful narrator that he is, the author of 2 Samuel provides a nice little summary of David's reign in the following verses. In verses 4 and 5, we read this. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Now, this is a summary statement of David's reign, and now we're going to learn how it is he actually came to reign and to rule in Jerusalem, because at this time, that city doesn't belong to God's people. So look at what we read in verse 6 there. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, listen to this, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come up in here. This is a taunt, okay? Uh, this past Friday, I was able to take my dad and my three sons fishing. And we did some shoreline fishing at a nearby lake, and we found this great little spot, a little bluegill fishing hole. And if you can imagine, this, this shoreline, it, it had both trees and shrubs that were overgrown, and they came out over uh, the pond, the lake there. So you've got this, this little carved-out area where you can cast, where you've got these trees and bushes. And you know what each tree and bush was covered with? Fishing line lures and bobbers, <laughs> right? They were covered with it, tons of them. They're actually, it was actually kind of funny to see all these lures and lines hanging from the trees. In many ways, those snagged lures and bobbers, we could say this, were a reminder of the fishing failures of fishermen of old, right? 
Well, in a very similar way, the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, you know what? They were a reminder of Israel's failure. You see, during the conquest, God commanded Israel to take Jerusalem. Indeed, Genesis 15, 21, in that text, God promised Abraham that he would give Abraham's offspring the land of the Jebusites. However, Judges 121 records that the people disobeyed the Lord and they did not drive out the Jebusites. And the fact that there are Jebusites still in Jerusalem at this time was a reminder of Israel's failure to trust and obey God. You could say the Jebusites were the lions, bobbers, and lures on the trees. John Calvin makes this insightful comment. He says this, he says, when therefore they feared their enemies and fell back, this is referring to their failure to take the land, it was a sign that they did not add faith in what God had said to them. Yet notice now, through David, God's anointed king, God's promise to Abraham is coming to pass. And just by way of application, I just want to just touch on something briefly. And let me point out, friend, that God's promises are certain in spite of chronological distance. This is to say that time does not erode the reliability of God's word. And I think it would do our souls some good to remember this. But there's something else going on in this text this passage is yet another reminder, friend, please hear me, that God opposes the proud. More than that, God brings the prideful, haughty person, group, people low. Notice what the Jebusites say to David. They are so confident in themselves and their city's defense that they claim, get a load of this, that even the blind and the lame can ward off David and his men. It's really an arrogant claim. They're saying that sightless eyes and helpless legs are enough to repeal any attack of David's. I mean, if you like talking smack, this is some serious smack by the Jebusites to David. Okay? But you know what? They're going to eat their words. Because notice what we read in the very next verse. Verse 7. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him go up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. What David is doing is he's throwing their jeering remarks back at him. It's not that David hates physically blind and lame people, but he's using the term they threw at him right back at him, right back at them. And faith, there's a lesson here for us, okay? These people were so haughty, so arrogant, we have this in, impenetrable wall, this city. 
The blind and the lame can stop you, David. And notice what we see happening. They are brought low. They are defeated. Faith. The Bible repeatedly teaches that pride goes before the what? Fall. God always, always, always bring low the haughty. So here's the application. Humble yourself before the Lord or he's going to do it for you. Now, for those wondering how David's men defeated such a stronghold, there's a clue for us in verse 8, the water shaft. Archaeologists tell us that there's an extensive network of water tunnels under the city of Jerusalem, and it's most likely that one of those water shafts, it was through one of those water shafts that David's men entered the city. Okay? Now notice what David does next here in verse 9. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around the Milo inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Notice what we see David doing. He's conquering and he's building. In fact, this very city, the city of David, it's still standing today. Do you know this? In fact, you want to see a picture of the city? Picture of it at night? There it is. <laughs> the image we've been using this entire time for a study of 2 Samuel is the city of David. Now look at what we learn next about the king of Israel in verses 11 through 12. This is really important. And Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of David. Is that what it says? For the sake of his people who? Israel. Why did God establish David as king? For the sake of who? God's people. David has been given for their good. Yet as great as David is, we see a crack in his armor. Because look at what the next verse says in verse 13. Notice what David took. Man, as we're reading First and Second Samuel, ever since First Samuel 8, when Samuel warned God's people about kings that would take things from them, whenever we see this phrase, take or grab, it's not a positive thing. So notice what we see there in verse 13. And David took more concubines and what? Wives from Jerusalem. Eat God's word forbid this, that the king would do this. David did. And after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. Amen, amen. This is God's word. How many of you prefer Pepsi over Coke? 
How many of you prefer Coke over Pepsi? These are my people. These are my people. <laughs> okay. I, I'm, a, I'm a Coke guy myself. Uh, I don't know when the last time is you, you enjoyed a Coca-Cola from an aluminum can, but I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but that the tab on the can of Coke, it actually has two holes. You see it there? There's a lower one and an upper one. Okay. I never knew this. But do you know that there's a purpose for that top hole in the Coke can? I just learned this. You know what it is? What is it? It's to hold your straw. Yeah, I know. <laughs> right? Okay. You, you, here. You crack the sucker open, you twist it around, and then you're able to stick your straw in there so it doesn't run. Th this was new to me like 12 hours ago, or 24 hours ago, okay? Because I have to be honest with you, though, although I've, I've noticed the two holes in the tab, I never took time to consider its purpose. It's just always something I've observed that's just been around. Well, I think in a similar way, I think many Christians can take the same approach when it comes to the Bible's teaching concerning kingship. What I mean is they never consider the purpose behind God's plan for his king. Well, in the passage I just read, we learn the purpose for why God has instituted his king for his people, don't we? Notice what again what we read in verse 12. The text makes it very clear that God had established David as king and exalted his kingdom. And why has God done that? It's for the sake, notice, of God's people. This is to say, for the good and well-being of God's people. You see, faith, this passage is teaching us as we're seeing the unfolding story of God's redemptive plan, as we're learning more about God's plan and purpose for king, this text is revealing this foundational truth, and that is this, and that is God's king is given for your good. God's king, his anointed king, is given for the good of his people. And for those of us today that are united to God by faith in Christ, that's you. Now, on its face, I know this doesn't seem that amazing or that profound. But friend, I want to tell you and I want to encourage you, I cannot overemphasize how important it is that we understand and believe this truth. Because Christian, when you believe this truth and you live in light of it, anxiety will decrease and joy will increase. And let me tell you why. You see, we all love the idea of someone granting us whatever we want, don't we? Kind of like that show, Three Wishes. And we love that idea because we firmly believe that we know what's best for our lives, don't we? I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but the truth is we don't know. As sinful fallen people, we don't know what's best for our lives, even though we often deceive ourselves into thinking that we do. 
So you know what? Instead of God giving us a genie in the bottle, you know what God does? God in his mercy, he gives us something even greater. And you know what that is? He gives us an all-wise, all-powerful king, one far greater and wiser than David to rule our lives, and that's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Amen? You see, what we see in part here with David, we see in brilliant high definition in the Lord Jesus Christ. Far greater than David, God has given us David's son for our good. What I'm saying is this. You know what your greatest need is, Christian? It's for Jesus to rule over your life. Jesus is the wise king you need. And here's the question. Do you believe it? Do you believe his rightful reign in your life is for your good? You could put it another way. Do you believe Jesus knows what's best for your life? Do you believe he is the king you need to submit to and follow? Because faith, underneath all our doubts and anxieties, is the arrogant, haughty notion that we don't believe that Christ has been given to our good, but rather we believe that we know what's best. Rather, we think if we are our own kings, our own sovereigns, then our lives would be so much better. I know I do. We doubt 2 Samuel 5, 12. Indeed, this is often why at times we can even get bitter at God. Right? Why, why do we get bitter at God? We believe so because God got it wrong. You know what? Man, God got it wrong with giving me this difficult boss. Look at the circumstance God has allowed in my life. God, you got it wrong. Or this difficult spouse, or a difficult child, or difficult neighbors, or difficult airlines and car travel, or whatever it might be, right? Or the slow guy in front of me, right? God, you're getting it wrong. I know what's best for me. What's best for me is for the freeway to part like the Red Sea so can I make my appointments. What's best for me is, is a wife who looks at me and says, blessed are you most handsome among all men. <laughs> right? Like, we want to be our own kings and we think we know what's best and we get anxious because we see the world around us not going the way we want it to go. This is why we fear the future. This is why we're racked with anxiety. It's because we doubt God's going to get it right. We don't believe God, the king, the sovereign king of the universe, has been given for our good. In our passage, as we're seeing God's plan that, of a king that ultimately is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, we begin to see revealing what it means and the attributes and characteristics of God's king. 
In this passage, God establishes three rules for the king of his kingdom, three rules that demonstrate why God's king has been given for our good. And again, let me point out the purposes for David in these roles are ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the first thing I just want to briefly draw your attention to. We learn that God's king is a faithful husband. Look at what we see in verse 1 of chapter 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and what? Flesh. Flesh. Uh, you don't have to say it out loud, but I want you just for a moment, what comes to your mind when you think and you hear the word king? Last night I was talking with my wife, Stephanie, after she said, blessed are you most handsome among all men. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> and I asked her that very question. I said, Stephanie, tell me, what comes to your mind, what character or image immediately comes to your mind when you hear the word king? You know what she said? This. <laughs> the Burger King mascot. I said, really? She's like, I'm sorry. That's honestly. Anyone else? Was this what you thought of? The, the truth is, and this is important, we all have our own perception of what we think a king is, don't we? And whether we acknowledge it or not, that perception, it shapes the way we understand God's king. That's why we need texts like 2 Samuel 5. For what 2 Samuel 5.1 does is it not only dismantles our false perception, but it also replaces it with the biblical vision for God's king. And notice what we learn in this text. God's king is not a distant king, nor is he some joker like the Burger King mascot. No, God's purpose, God's plan is that God's true anointed king, he's a faithful husband. Notice the language of this verse. It says, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. As several commentators have pointed out, this is an allusion to Genesis chapter 2, right? When Adam first sees Eve, what does he say? She is bone of my bone and what? Flesh of my flesh. That, this language is not by accident. The implicit promise is that the king will husband the people. He will care for them as a husband cares for his wife. And here's why this is important. In every romantic relationship, each person is tempted to place godlike expectations on the other person. What I mean is they can be tempted to look to the other person to give them what only God can provide, namely joy, security, satisfaction. Friend, if you are looking to a romantic relationship to give you peace and joy, you're looking for love in all the wrong places. True completeness is only found in our faithful husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? 
And unlike sinful husbands, like me, Christ will never fail you. He's always faithful to his promises, and furthermore, he'll never leave you nor forsake you. Indeed, I want to also just press in here a moment and say it's only when you are enjoying Christ as your perfect husband that you can truly love your spouse the way God designs to. So the first thing I just want to point out is God's king is given for your good, and we see because he's a faithful husband. The second, I think this text highlights that he's a sufficient savior. Look at verses 6 and 7 again. And the king and his men, referring to David, went to Jerusalem against the Debusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. Uh, Alistair Begg uh, is a pastor up in Ohio, and he, was, he recently preached on this passage and before the service, his wife asked him, he's like, how are you going to explain how David's men got into the city through the water shaft? You know what Alistair said? He replied, well, I'm going to say to him, it's kind of like the itsy bitsy spider went up the water spout. She's like, really? He's like, no, I'm just kidding. But, but, but the, the, the truth is, he actually, he didn't take any time explaining how David's men invaded the city. And the reason why? Because the text really doesn't tell us. It doesn't give us too many details of how they actually encroached and took down the city. But, though the text doesn't give us details on how they overthrew the city, what the text does give us, I want to argue, is a vivid picture of salvation. Indeed, according to Jonathan Edwards, who was no slouch, when it came to studying the Bible and theology, you know what he said? He argues that David's capture of Jerusalem is the greatest picture of salvation in the Old Testament. He writes this. He says, It was redeemed by David, the captain of the hosts of Israel, out of the hands of the Jebusites, to be God's city, the holy place of his rest forever, where he would dwell. So Christ, the captain of his people's salvation, redeems his church out of the hands of devils to be his holy and beloved city. Amen. Now, aren't we thankful that Jesus gives us victory over the enemies of sin and death? Indeed, aren't we thankful that Jesus absorbed the wrath we are owed for sin on the cross? Friend, because Christ's work was sufficient, far greater than David capturing the city, because Christ's work was sufficient, you know what that means? There's nothing left for us to do. This is why salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Christ accomplished all the work. And this salvation is received simply by faith. Indeed, this is the greatest gift that our king gives us. Do we believe it? Finally, we see that God's king is a trustworthy shepherd. Notice there in verse 2. 
It says, in times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, again, more clarity, clarity on the purpose of the king. You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. Uh, one of the first lessons a, nov a novice pilot is taught, so I'm told, <laughs> is that he must trust his instruments, not his instincts. I see a couple of the pilots here are nodding with me. In a cloud or at night when visibility is restricted, a pilot can lose all sense of up and down. One's instincts may seem certain, but they may be profoundly wrong. So the pilot must trust the instrument panel. Right? Faith, so it is with God and his word. This passage clearly teaches that God's plan for his people is that they would be ruled by a shepherd king. The idea that one that's going to guide and lead them. And again, as great as David was, Jesus is greater. Christ is our greater and wiser shepherd. I mean, does Jesus not himself claim this, right? What does Jesus say in John 10, 14? He says, I am the good what? Shepherd. As our wise and good king, his ways are best even when they are hard, even when he leads us through a valley, even when we get scars and bumps and bruises, and even when they don't make sense. This is why one of the songs that we sing here at Faith is the song, Whatever My God Ordains is Right. Truthfully, that song is probably one of the hardest and scariest songs to sing as a Christian, isn't it? Yet we sing it as a truth because it's true. For it reminds us that God is good and wise. Consider, this is the second verse. I'm going to throw it up here on the screen. Whatever my God ordains is right. He will never deceive me. Do you believe that? He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content in what he has sent. His hand can turn my griefs away, and patiently I wait his day. God's king is given for your good. And as we talked about a couple weeks ago, God is doing all things for his glory and your good. Your king, the one who upholds the universe by his might and power, he's doing all things for your good, which might mean for some of you, Christian, you might be in a hard and difficult season right now. Some of you might be in a great season. Yet wherever God has you, know that it's right where he wants you to be for your good and his glory. So trust his ways. Don't spurn them. Faith, as tempting as it might be, 
to think that being granted three wishes with no financial restraint (laughs) is the best gift that could be given. God's word counsels us otherwise. For in Christ, God's true king, we have the greatest gift there is. We have a faithful husband, we have a sufficient savior, and we have a trustworthy shepherd. Christian God knows what I need, he knows what you need, and he has given us what we need the most, and that's his son, the greatest gift imaginable. The question is, that I want to leave us with, is do we believe it? I pray that we will, and then live in light of that truth. Let's pray.